Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last time, Warren Prestige walked us through a case for conditional immortality. Today, we'll delve into some of the key texts that proponents of natural immortality employ to make their case, including these four. Luke 23:43, John 14:2 and 3, 2 Corinthians 5:8, and Philippians 1:23. In each case, Prestige appeals to the context of the passage and basic logic to make his case. If you've ever wondered about what these verses mean, this episode will equip you to understand them from a conditional immortality perspective and share them with others. Here now is episode 405, Difficult Texts About the Intermediate State with Warren Prestige. Well, welcome back, Warren Prestige. So glad to have you on the show again today talking about conditional immortality. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you very much for having me again. It's a pleasure. So let's begin with a summary uh, why you don't find the handful of texts that seem to imply heaven at death convincing, or at least convincing enough to overturn your conviction that the dead are asleep until resurrection. Well, the first point is to say that they are just a handful. The Bible in general persistently teaches or implies that uh, death is the end of conscious existence. Uh, I don't think people that often appreciate just how regularly the Bible says or implies that. And so the fact that these texts are just a handful in itself makes me have a look at them again. The Bible is quite explicit right from the start, as I said last time in Genesis 2 and 3, uh, about what death is. The Psalms say uh, the dead don't remember God, don't praise God, are silent. Uh, the book of Job says that uh, in death, a person is more dead than a tree that has been cut down. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes says the dead know nothing. And the Bible uses imagery that implies that. It talks about us being like the flower of a field that is cut down and withered. And uh, in First Thessalonians 4, when Paul's talking about Christians who have died and trying to comfort the Christians who are alive, he makes no reference at all to the idea that the Christians who have died have gone to heaven. He focuses entirely upon the second coming of Christ and the resurrection. And that would have been a prime, prime, wonderful opportunity for Paul to launch into an explanation of how we go to heaven at death, but he doesn't do such so at all. And he says the same thing in First Corinthians 15 and uh, you know, in the Bible, the soul, sometimes the word that's used for soul is even used for a dead body. The Bible regularly treats human beings as integrated wholes. See, Paul, when he's, when he's summoning us to a full-blown dedication to God in, in Romans chapter 12, he asks us to present our bodies uh, as a living sacrifice. Yeah. And he says, this is our reasonable or spiritual worship. And so he's treating us as whole human beings. He's not saying, well, it's really your soul that counts and your body isn't so important. And, and, and the same is, is true of, uh, say, 
in Acts where Paul and Peter are both talking about the resurrection of Jesus. They quote from Psalm 16, which talks about one's soul going to Sheol or to Hades and seeing corruption. But in the case of Jesus, it didn't because he rose from the dead. So the word soul simply refers to the whole person there. And even David, the apostles say, is dead. So this it's simply that the consistent testimony of the Bible is in one direction. So that causes me to look at these particular texts and wonder whether, in fact, they are genuinely saying something in contradiction to that, or whether, in fact, uh, there are other ways of seeing what that, what is being said. Yeah, and that's a pretty standard approach to doctrine is and and interpreting the Bible is you want to you want to read the difficult text in light of the clear text. Of course, somebody on the other side would say, "Well, your clear texts are my difficult texts." Well. Hold on a second. Who, which side has more texts? You know, if you've got 500 conditional immortality texts where every king who dies, it says, slept with his fathers, uh, every time uh, in a poetic section of the Bible, whether Job or Ecclesiastes or Psalms, uh, someone's having a bad day or contemplating death, uh, they talk about how there's no praising God, as you pointed out, in Sheol and so on. Uh, and we find the metaphor of sleep really prominent in the New Testament. It's there a little bit in the Old Testament. Certainly one of the Psalms mentions the sleep of death, that specific phrase. You have this, I don't know if it's 500, but certainly dozens of uh, sleep of the dead texts. And then you've got, uh, what, five on the other side? I mean, I think that qualifies as interpreting the difficult text in light of the clear ones, uh, or maybe the minority in light of the majority. And so I, I, I appreciate what you're saying as far as a wide sweep of Scripture, that you get this in this flavor, this sense that death is really a pause. It's not an experienced state, but it's an unconscious state. Uh, so, But let's go to those, those verses that people like to bring up. And let's talk about Luke 23, 43, which I can just read out, uh, just reading from the ESV, says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And of course, this is Jesus talking to the thief on the cross, the standard, uh, quote-unquote standard, interpretation that N.T. Wright and others would use for this is to say that that very day, uh, mm. Jesus and the thief on the cross went to a, I don't know, subterranean compartment or another dimension or whatever, who knows, mm. uh, that's called paradise. And mm. so how would you uh, come back and give uh, an understanding here? Well, I, I'd like to begin by saying it's really important to take this verse fully seriously. It's not a matter of explaining this text away. This is Jesus speaking in majesty. And uh, we don't want to minimize what he says, and we don't want to uh, explain it away. We need to listen to it. And uh, I guess in a sense that he's contradicting the whole rest of the Bible, <laughs> we need to take it seriously. But but we need to think, I think there are a number of things that uh, cause me to, to pause and think again. The first thing is, 
uh, that if Jesus is saying to the criminal that they both go to paradise that day, how does that answer the criminal's request? Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. See, the criminal is talking about Jesus assuming the throne of the kingdom of God and coming as king. And when, when did that happen? So, if, I mean, if, even if you keep to the context, the writings of Luke, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, according to Acts, Jesus was exalted at the right hand of God at his resurrection. According to uh, Acts, immediately after his death, he was in Hades, uh, the grave, and in danger of corruption, except that God raised him from the dead. And more widely, the, the Bible consistently teaches uh, that God seated Christ at his right hand following his resurrection, and we await his coming as king. And so the question that the criminal asked was really not about what, do I ha what happens to me at death. It was about Jesus coming as king. And this word paradise, uh, in the Bible, it's a word for the final state, the new creation. If you look at that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, it says that the tree of life is there uh, in paradise. And then if you look at Revelation 22, you find that that puts it in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. It doesn't put it somewhere after death. So it looks like the criminals asking about the final kingdom of God. You would think that that would be what Jesus would be talking about also. So the context requires me to question whether the common interpretation is correct. And secondly, on the face of it, Jesus seems to be saying, and the criminal, uh, that he and the criminal go to paradise together that day, but it doesn't necessarily say that. That may not be what is being said. It's not the only way of understanding that saying. There are other possibilities. For example, it's possible that the word today actually goes with truly I tell you. It's possible that he's saying truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's possible. Uh, there's no comma in the Greek. There's no marker as to where I tell you stops and where what he's saying begins. In fact, in biblical Greek, it's more common for the word today to come with the verb it refers to. For example, in Acts 20, verse 26, Paul says to the elders at Ephesus, I declare to you this day that I'm not responsible for the blood of any of you. So it's possible that Jesus is solemnly saying, truly I say to you today, I will be with you in paradise. Or today can mean that this will necessarily happen on this day, but that what is happening today will lead to what I'm talking about. What is happening today will lead inevitably or directly to this consequence. For example, he could be saying, because today you recognize me as king, even though I'm here on the cross, and because I am actually king, 
because I'm dying for you here today, you will be with me when I come in my kingdom in paradise. So the today could be, this will unfold from what is happening today. It's remarkable that Jesus speaks this way at his trial. In Luke chapter 22, verse 69, he's standing there on trial before the Sanhedrin. And yet he says this, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, of course, from now on, he actually went out to be executed. That's what happened. But as far as Jesus is concerned, the whole era of salvation is accomplished. Because he's asserting that precisely in his weakness, precisely because he's going through this thing now, he will be seated at the right hand of God. Uh, what's happening now will inevitably lead to that reality. And so I think that's what he's saying to the thief. I can tell you today, today you will be with me in Herod because of what is happening now. That is what is going to happen. In John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So he's speaking from the standpoint of today, and he's regarding the whole matter of salvation as an accomplished fact. So I think that that's the way Jesus is talking to the criminal. He's saying, well done, you've recognized me as your king, you're right, precisely because of today, because you've recognized that, today you will be with me in paradise. So the I'm, I'm just trying to get my head around this uh, second theory, the second way of looking at it. You're saying that the first idea is that he's saying, I say this to you today, or today I say this to you, my, you know, that it goes with the former. And then the other idea is that because of what you've done here today, because of what you've said and because of what I'm doing, you will be with me in paradise. Okay. Is that is that a grammatical, is there a grammatical reason for that? Or what is the... It's a way of seeing the whole era of salvation as an accomplished fact. And precisely because he's dying there, he can affirm the whole thing as an accomplished okay. fact. Okay. All right. All right. So let's move on to the next one, which is uh, John 14, verses 2 and 3. And uh, this is a text that very often comes up in this conversation where Jesus is at the upper room with his disciples. And he said to them, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And uh, the conversation goes on from there, but especially this part in verse 2 where it says, in my father's house are many rooms, and that he goes to prepare a place for them. And the understanding here is that Jesus is going to heaven, and he's going to prepare a place for them in heaven, which is his father's house, so that when the disciples die, 
they will have a place to go. How do you see this one? Right, yeah. Um, it's remarkable that there he is. Uh, he's the one that's going to die, and yet he's comforting the disciples. That You'd think they'd be comforting him, but it's the other <laughs> way around. Uh, that's, the way, that's the way Jesus is. And actually, you know, I don't see anything in this passage which seems to even seems to jar with conditional mortality. I think that it's only if you come to this passage with preconceptions that you read it as someone promising other people that they will go to heaven when they die. Um, it's only when you've got that in your head already that going away and uh, means that we will go away to heaven that you, you read it that way. Jesus actually says, I will come again and will take you. So he's actually talking about his second coming. Mm. And that's when we go to be with him. He's saying nothing at all about what happens when we die in this text. It's about what happens when Jesus comes again. And that's when we will be with him wherever, whenever he is. Uh, he's going away. Sure, he talks about going away. He's dying and he's rising and he's going to the Father. He tells Mary Magdalene in the garden, you know, I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but I'm going to the Father. And he's your Father as well as mine. So that's what he means by going away. But he says he will come again. And that's what Paul says in First Thessalonians, you know, uh, the Lord will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So I don't actually see this as a, as a challenge to conditionalism. I think that it's only if you already have in your mind that this idea of going away at death that you would read it that way, because he explicitly says, I will come again. Very good. So in this understanding, we see Jesus as, as you just mentioned there, returning. We know that Jesus is returning for the purpose of establishing his kingdom on earth. So when he says, where I am, you will be also, you know, that, that really fits in well with that, as well as Revelation 21, where we see New Jerusalem coming down from heaven uh, as a bride adorned for her husband. So, yeah, I guess if somebody wanted to go live in heaven, they would miss out being with Jesus because <laughs> well, he's coming here. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's not so much about us going to heaven. It's about Christ bringing heaven to us. Yeah, It's, yeah. About, it's about the whole thing becoming one thing, uh, God dwelling with us, as Revelation says, the dwelling of God is with human beings yeah. now. And those kind of distinctions, in a sense, don't kind of matter anymore. When the Bible talks about uh, we have a hope laid up for us in heaven. It doesn't mean that the hope is a going to heaven. It means that at this point in time, it's safe in the purpose of God, that it, at the right time it will be manifested and realized and accomplished at the return of Christ. Mm -hmm. Very good. So let's let's move on to 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Uh, this is another very common verse people will bring up where the Apostle Paul writes, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And uh, often I hear this quoted as to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, you know, something like that. But that's not actually what it says. It says, 
we'd, he would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And uh, yeah. the understanding there is that if you're away from the body, that is your soul has left your body, and then you're with the Lord in the intermediate state. Uh, that is not, I don't think, the best way of thinking about this. What, what's your take on it? Well, you could see how someone who had that in their head and they read that one verse yeah. would, would kind of take it that way. But as usual, you, you kind of read the context and you ask yourself what Paul is talking about in the context. And he's already told us in the preceding verses what he means. So it's not a matter of ripping this text out of its surrounding, but looking at it in the context. In verses 1 to 5 of that chapter, Paul talks about two tents or dwellings or states of being that we have. The first one is this present one, this earthly text tent, and the second one is a building from God, which we long for, he says. Uh, we would rather be in that other state. And he makes clear there what the second state is, he's not talking about a disembodied state. He says, I don't want to be naked. I don't want to be unclothed. I want to be further clothed. So he's talking about a new embodied state, the, the house not made with hands, as he calls it. That's his great hope. And in fact, Paul's talking about exactly the same thing he talked about in his first letter to these Corinthians. He's not coming up with something different from what he said in First Corinthians uh, 15, he's talking about the state of resurrection. Uh, he's just, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, he's talked already about the hope of being raised as Christ was raised. And in 1 Corinthians 15, just as here in 2 Corinthians, uh, he uses the metaphor of clothing. He talks about putting on immortality, uh, putting on incorruption, and he tells us when. This will happen at the coming of Christ, at the resurrection. And he uses the same metaphor of uh, swallowing, being swallowed up. And uh, he talks uh, in Romans 8 in a similar way about when we will have this glory that he's talking about. He talks about the redemption of our bodies at the resurrection, at the second coming of Christ. So in, the, in verses 1 to 5, as I think most commentators recognize these days, he's talking about the, the same thing that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, in verses 6 to 8, he isn't suddenly talking about something different. He uses the word so, so. What follows is not different. It follows immediately on from what he's just been saying. It's not something different. So... You have to ask yourself, how come he talks about being away from the body if he's talking about resurrection? Well, I think it's because he's talking about this present life in this present body. Again, you look at the context, you look at verse 10, and he says, all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive recompense for what we have done in the body. Now there, he's using the expression, the body, clearly to mean this present life, what we have done in this body. He doesn't mean he wants to be in a disembodied state. He's just said in the first five verses that he doesn't want to be in a disembodied state. He doesn't want right. to be unclothed or naked. What he does, he wants to finish with this earthly life, because he's being persecuted so much, 
and because a new life awaits him in Christ. He's not saying that it'll happen straight away at death. He's already said he, it'll happen at the resurrection. It's, it's just that he's not concerned about what happens at death because what happens at death is unconsciousness, nothingness. It's not something you experience. It's not of any concern precisely because it's a state of complete unconsciousness. So he can leap from being away from this life and with Christ precisely because the death that happens in between doesn't matter. It's not something we experience. It's a condition of sleep. There's no intermediate state whatsoever. And in fact, this passage really presupposes what we call conditional eternity, because if there was an intermediate state, Paul would have to take account of that. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't. He just ignores it, yeah. the condition of death. So, uh, in effect, if Paul's disembodied soul was going to go somewhere to heaven, what he's saying here wouldn't really matter, wouldn't really make sense. But it does make sense because being absent from this life and being home of the Lord, we don't know what happens in between. We don't experience it. It's nothing to us. Yeah. The next thing we know is that we are with the Lord. Yeah, I think of the distinction between subjective and objective. From an objective point of view, from the time, for example, King David died until today is roughly 3,000 years. From David's perspective, he dies, and the next moment is the resurrection. Yeah. Uh, so he doesn't experience the intermediate state because he's not conscious during it, whereas yeah. the rest of the world does experience it, and certainly yeah. uh, God experiences everything. There is, I think, a tendency for us to think objectively as Westerners, whereas yeah. I think what Paul here is thinking of it from his own point of view that at that moment he would be, uh, you know, just skipping over whatever else happens that he doesn't experience with the Lord. What about Philippians one twenty three? I want to hit that one too. It's pretty similar to what we just covered as far as the understanding here, but it does get brought up from time to time. It says, I am hard-pressed between the two. Uh, what are the two? Uh, living on or dying? I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And then he goes on to conclude he'd rather stay on in the flesh uh, because that's more necessary for them. The idea here is that Paul here in Philippians one twenty three calls death departing and being with Christ. Yeah. And uh, so the question is, how do you understand this uh, this verse? Right, well, Philippians one twenty three, as you say, is, is, is similar to... A, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. And, and, the, and the answer, I think, is, as you say, similar. It sounds like you might think that he means dying and going straight to be with Christ immediately at death. But he's speaking from a subjective, as you put it, point of view, from his own point of view, where the death in between, the death state, is of no concern because, precisely, uh, it's not something we experience. From our point of view, as far as we're concerned, it's timeless. It doesn't matter. And once again, we know what Paul's talking about. We know that he's talking about being with Christ at the resurrection from the context. 
the same letter, chapter 3. It's not a matter of, you know, looking around for some other book and some other writer. It's a matter of looking at this writer and this book. And in chapter 3, he talks about the heavenly call of God in Christ. But what does he mean? Uh, is it, does he mean his soul or spirit going to heaven at death? No, he tells us in verse 11, what he's looking for is the resurrection of the dead. And just a few verses on, in verses 20 and 21, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. But again, he's not talking about going to heaven at death, because he explains. He says, what we're looking for is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming from heaven to transform uh, the body of our humiliation so that it may be conformed to his body. And so the biblical, the true hope, isn't about going to heaven. It's about God or Christ bringing heaven to earth, uh, not taking us away, but coming back to claim this world. And so why does Paul say he wants to depart and be with Christ? Well, he uses this word depart for death. Also in 2 Timothy, verse 4, and actually, it was quite a common metaphor in, in the Greek of the day for dying. Uh, it, was a, it was taken from the idea of a ship leaving harbour or a military unit striking camp. But once again, Paul goes right on to explain what he's talking about. Even in Second Timothy verse 4, chapter 4, verse 6, when he talks about his departure, he goes right on to say, there's reserved for me a crown of righteousness. Now, he's not saying that he's going to receive that when he dies. He's saying, the crown of righteousness which the Lord will give me on that day, the day of his appearing. So that's it. The biblical hope, the true hope of the world, it's consistent with the rest of Scripture, even though Paul uses language here, uh, which brings home the immediacy of our being brought into the presence of Christ through the resurrection. It brings home to us again that we have nothing to fear in death if we belong to Christ. Uh, we don't have a purgatory to go through. <laughs> we don't have to... Uh, imagine if Paul believed in purgatory and yet he was ignoring all those issues about dying. Those issues just don't exist for Paul. What happens when you die? Doesn't That's not a problem for Paul. The only issue is what will happen to you when Christ returns? Will he recognize you as one of his or will he not? Will he raise you to immortality or will he raise you to judgment? Yeah, very good. I, I'm reminded of the question, why have a resurrection from the dead if no one's really dead? You know, and right. there, there really is a... A question there about, well, what is the point of resurrection? If we are, as Plato would teach us in his Phaedo, in a sense, entombed in our bodies, mm -hmm. death is the escape. Mm -hmm. And now, why, why would we want our bodies back if we're in mm -hmm. some sort of other mode of existing where we can pass through walls and travel at the speed of light and whatever other sci-fi fantasies you want to throw in there? What is the point of coming back to a physical existence? I, I don't, I'm not really sure what the point would be there. Well, the whole, this again brings up the issue of the consistency and the coherence of Christian doctrine. 
you just can't marry the idea of the immortality of the soul and going at death with the idea of resurrection at the coming of Christ. The two just don't go together. Yeah. Uh, if you if you go to heaven at death, then the second coming of Christ is of really quite secondary and minor significance. And yeah. the resurrection is, as you say, uh, an add-on, not the not. It's the an central, awkward add-on. Yeah, not the central hope of the Christian gospel. It's just sort of duct taped on. Yeah. So there's <laughs> lots of ways in which what has become mainstream teaching just does not connect with biblical thinking at all yeah as i I said in this philippians passage again uh paul goes on in chapter three to emphasize it's it's the transformation of our body we are looking for at the coming of christ we're not looking for um, some uh departure of the soul yeah the christian hope is really not focused on what happens to me at death the christian hope the biblical hope is focused on what God will do with this world. It's corporate. When uh, he manifests himself Mm. fully as God, when Christ comes, that's the hope uh, that the Bible is focused on. And will we be part of that or will we not? That's the question for us. Mm. Yeah, so it's a corporate rather than an individualistic hope. You, You reminded me of Oscar Kuhlman's comparison between Socrates after he took the hemlock and Jesus as he waited in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what? You remember that? He Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah. He he yeah. drew out this contrast of how Socrates is so uh sort of otherworldly in in that other people start crying, and he, he, he says, look, if you're going to cry and be a bunch of sissies, get out of here. This is like my birthday, and mm. you know, not, not that he actually says the word birthday, but this is like the day where he's going to ascend, he's going to escape, he's going to finally philosophize without his stupid body interrupting him with noises and appetites that he has to feed in order to keep it going and sleeping and all these things that distract him from his goal of meditation and philosophizing. And, uh, you know, he, he takes that hemlock and he does it with uh, a peace that he's welcoming a friend, mm. in a sense. Uh, whereas Jesus is shaking, he's mm. in agony, he's crying out to, to God, if there's any other way, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He's telling his disciples, you pray too. This is serious. You know, he he's, says he's in agony to the point of death. Just an incredible difference between the Jewish worldview of what death is. And, and Jesus believes he's going to be raised from the dead. He's made that clear. But even still, death is an enemy. And uh, that's, that's borne out in the last book of the Bible too. And Paul says, First Corinthians 15, you know, death is an enemy, the last enemy. Yeah. You know, it's not a friend. It's the enemy to the kingdom of God. It's, you know, death and sin are the great enemies, you know. They, death is not a, a transition to a better thing. And if you think that way about it, you start, as I've said before, you start to lose your grip on the importance of right. caring for people in this life. Uh, why yeah. why do that you know if, uh, 
if they go into a better world. Well, you could you could go even one step further. Why not why not kill people before they, you know, get tempted with bigger sins? Oh, you know, I mean, you could really get into some really horrifying behaviors. You know, we've we've had a story about a woman who drowned her little children in the bathtub so that they would go to heaven. You know, it's just like, oh my goodness, oh, this is, did? yeah, yeah, this That's is just really. a bizarre idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, people that think mm-hmm. that way mm-hmm. are, you know, rightly institutionalized. Mm-hmm. You know, our society recognizes mm-hmm. that that's yeah. not a sane way yeah. of uh, thinking. Yeah. Whereas Jesus went around, you know, curing all these diseases and caring for people's bodies. You know, you would think, well, why did a spiritual man do all that stuff? Why is he concerned about that? Well, he's precisely concerned about that because we are single unified beings. You know, the, this world is God's creation. It's not something to be abandoned or, or despised or thought, thought lightly of. And uh, it, uh, uh, salvation is about uh, the salvation of this world. It's not about uh, leaving it behind. Yeah. The other, the other thought I had was about your approach to these texts that we just looked at over and over again you one of the things you mentioned was well i can see how you would think that if you assumed a separation of the soul from the body at death and a conscious existence but really none of these can build that doctrine if you already assume it from the start an a priori assumption then you read Luke 23, 43, or Philippians 1, 23, and you're like, ah, oh, you see it? There it is. And you can use it as a, a sort of a posteriori proof text, but you can't, uh, you can't use it to build the doctrine uh, from the ground up uh, because you're just not going to find that kind of phraseology. Death is no more than the separation of the soul from the body. Guess what? That is not a verse in the Bible. I can find that in Plato's corpus, yeah. sure. But I can't find that in the Bible. That's just not uh, even something similar to what the Bible says anywhere. So I really do appreciate how biblical your approach is and how it fits in with the greater majority of scriptures. Now, when it comes to uh, resources on this subject, what would you recommend for people who want to go deeper? Right. My book. (laughs) um... Surprise! (laughs) I, I, I don't make any money out of the sales of my book, so it's not, you won't be helping my superannuation by buying it. You'll be helping yourself, though, by buying it. There's a book by Freeman Barton called Heaven, Hell, and Hades. I don't know whether it's still in print, but he's an American, and he wrote a, that book, Heaven, Hell, and Hades, which brings uh, conditionalism together. Um, even the Archbishop of Ca- former Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, I believe in man, uh, he uh, has a conditionalist view of the of human nature. There, as you said, Oscar Coleman's Immortality of the Soul, The Resurrection of the Dead. Uh, another fellow, David Dean, wrote a book, Resurrection, His and Ours. There's a New Zealander, Murray Harris, who wrote a book, Raised Immortal, where he um, brings out very clearly that there is no immortal soul in the Bible. I don't agree with everything Murray Harris says either, but he makes that point very, very clearly in a scholarly and very thorough fashion. And in fact, the reality is that I think the majority of theologians and biblical scholars today accept quite 
openly that the Bible does not teach the immortality of the soul, they may cope with that fact in various ways. They may explain it away or they may add other points to their worldview, but I think the majority of serious scholars these days accept that reality. Uh, as you said, um, uh, even Martin Luther did certainly, Paul Althaus's theology of Martin Luther. There's a, a compilation by Joel Green, uh, What About the Soul, which um, has a variety of, uh, of essays from different points of view, uh, supporting the conditionalist view. It's remarkable. You come across articles even in the New Bible Dictionary. Oh, yes. Uh, what's his face? Uh, Richard Bauckham yeah. in there. Is yeah, it you look up the, the articles on body and life, yeah. and they support they support that view. It's not that it's uh, that, yes, that one. Yeah. Hmm. In my edition, at least, <laughs> 21st century edition. Do you have the old one? I, I had the old blue one for a while. Well, I've got a 21st century edition, but of course they keep coming out. I don't know what the latest edition is. Um, but, but the articles there on body and life uh, were helpful on that connection. So there are a number of resources like that. And RJB, I think it's Richard J. Bauckham, right? Right, I'm not sure. Is the guy who but, wrote the... Um, it's the article on eschatology, actually. Uh, okay. It's pretty good. It says... The Christian hope for life beyond death is not based on the belief that part of man survives death. Right. All men, through their descent from Adam, are naturally mortal. Immortality mm. is a gift. That just gets yeah, me right. excited. <laughs> Evangelical Christians would be, so many of them would be amazed to find <laughs> that these things, these things are written in these books. Unfortunately, these things don't filter down, unfortunately, to yeah. the person, the, to the, the, the congregation, yeah. uh, either because pastors are reluctant to believe them or accept them or don't, haven't studied enough, or because they somehow or other don't want to confront their, their flock with new ideas. It is very difficult for many people to imagine that the mainstream of the Christian church has been wrong about this for so long. It is very difficult for people to imagine that. And yet, you know, the mainstream of the Christian church has been wrong about a lot of things over the years. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation itself was about setting many of those things right in the light of the Bible. And it ought not to be entirely surprising to us that this is an ongoing project for us to continue in the light of the Bible to unearth the biblical gospel and all its force and all its consistency and all its purity and power. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that was quite a bibliography. <laughs> oh, well. I could tell you've been a, a, a reader for a long time. Well, to be honest, there was a period when I was deeply reading it, and of course, but it's not as if I, uh, this is my only passion or interest in life. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I find it natural to read and explore, and I'm not afraid, I don't think, to read people with different ideas. In mm -hmm. fact, when you do theological degrees from serious universities, you've got to. Yeah. You, you've got to face the full force of 
the whole tradition and the and the non-Christian world out there. Yeah. Uh, and have your idea, you know, you've got to do that. And uh, it knocks you into shape. Mm-hmm. Very good. So next time we can get into the topic of the fate of the lost. And uh, that'll be... That'll be all kinds of fun, but uh, for now we'll, <laughs> we'll have to call it quits, as we say over right. here. Uh, you have to point out if any of my American slang uh, trips you up, but uh, so far I think we've been communicating okay. <laughs> I watch enough television to be pretty familiar with American slang. <laughs> yeah, I saw some some YouTube video about New Zealand slang, and I was completely lost. I was just yeah. befuddled. Beyond words. I had no idea. What well, I am too. With some of <laughs> Both of us. Actually, c- compared to David Burge, who I interviewed uh, some years ago, uh, your accent is, is rather tame to my ear. Uh, yeah. His, his yeah. was a little thicker. Right. But, uh, okay. okay. So I appreciate that. I ministered for five months in England. Ah. In Lancashire, a church there, Baptist church there. And they, their normal pastor was a guy from uh, from the Cotswolds down in the south, and they told me they could understand me better than they could understand him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great! All right, Warren. Well, let's uh, let's draw it to an end here. Thanks yeah. for your uh, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it too. Well, that brings this interview to a close. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, come on over to episode 405, Difficult Texts About the Intermediate State on restitudio.org and leave your remarks and feedback there. Also, in the show notes for this episode, I have a link to Warren Prestige's book, Life, Death, and Destiny, the paperback on Amazon, as well as an ebook on Lulu. And there's also many other resources available at the Conditional Immortality Association of New Zealand. That's afterlife.co.nz or if you're a kiwi.nz. And we have another episode coming out on this topic again next week where we delve into the whole topic of hell. Is it eternal conscious torment or annihilation? And what do we do with the handful of verses that seem to imply Torment goes on forever and ever. So be sure to tune in for that next week. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitudio.org. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.